This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human. Today, I'm sitting down with science fiction writer, essayist, innovator, and cultural icon PJ Manny. PJ Manny is the author of the best selling and Philip K. Dick Award nominated science fiction techno thriller, Revolution, published in 2015 by 47 North in the Phoenix Horizon trilogy, with Identity, published in 2017, and Conscience, published in 2021. Set as alternate future American histories, the novels chart the influence of world changing technologies on power and nations. A former chairperson of Humanity Plus, she helped re brand the organization, launch H Plus Magazine, and organize the first multi-org conference on futurist topics, Convergence 08. She authored Yucky Gets Yummy, How Speculative Fiction Creates Society, and Empathy in the Time of Technology, How Storytelling is the Key to Empathy, foundational works on the neuropsychology of empathy and media. Many presented her ideas to National Geographic, the Producers Guild of America, Directors Guild of America, NASA JPL, MIT, Huffington Post, the H Plus Summit, and the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies. She is also a frequent guest on podcasts and web shows and is widely published as a public thinker and critic. Many consults for varied organizations about the future of humanity and technology, including artificial intelligence, robotics, cyborgs, nanotechnology, biotechnology, brain-computer interfaces, space, blockchains, and cryptocurrencies. Manny worked for over 25 years in film and television, motion picture PR at Walt Disney Touchstone Pictures, story development for independent film production companies, and writing as Patricia Manny for the critically acclaimed hit TV shows Hercules, The Legendary Journeys, and Xena, Warrior Princess. She also co-founded Uncharted Entertainment, writing and or creating many pilot scripts for television networks, including CBS, Fox, UPN, Discovery, ABC Family, and Comedy Central. Hi, PJ. Hello, Deb. How are you? I'm well. This is a really exciting conversation for me, so I am very eager to get going. So, PJ, you're an acclaimed essayist, you're a novelist, you've written for the screen across a number of different genres, and a lot of that writing seems pivoted around questions of what it will mean in the future to exist as a human in ways that are increasingly immersed in technologies. And for that reason, you sometimes get categorized with a group of people called futurists. Futurists are people who are interested in forecasting and predicting the future, who believe we're in the middle of profound transformation mobilized by revolutionary technologies. In an interview back in 2015, I know that that's a while ago, you may have changed the position on that. But, but in that interview, you mentioned that you consider yourself more of a storyteller than a futurist. Can you tell us what that distinction means to you? Why that distinction matters? Well, the interesting thing about being a professional futurist is you're neither predicting, you are forecasting, but what you're really doing is scenario building. And that's the part of considering the future that I feel I'm particularly good at. So it's taking a what if down a train of thought, a group of trends, and seeing where we think these trends could lead in a variety of different scenarios. And like everything else, anytime you set one what if in motion, it opens up you know, the multiverse, if you will, of new possibilities. And as you continue to go down these fractal lines of, well, what about this? And what about this? And that could lead to that. What you're really building is story. 
And I am not the kind of futurist who's going to pull out my statistical charts and give you an analysis based on mathematical data. I'm going to use my imagination to posit through what I see as the present trends where we could be going. And so in that case, as a futurist, and I do label myself one because people pay me to do it, I prefer to think of myself as a storyteller because I'm taking you down things that are happening, things that could happen, and what where that might lead. I feel a kind of kinsmanship with this idea. I teach a class on science fiction. I've had a number of science fiction writers and scholars on the show, people who dream of the future, write of the future, imagine the future for us through stories. Dave Eggers has been on the show, Malka Older, Jake Wachtel, just just to name a few. And one of the things that's so striking that I think that more than any other guests that I've had on the show, I find a wide variety among these groups of storytellers, science fiction writers, about how they're going to just describe or define the thing that they're doing, in other words, the genre of science fiction. Can you give us your working definition of that term, science fiction? (laughs) There are as many working versions of that term as there are science fiction writers. I see science fiction as a fictional story in the future that involves science and or technology. It's really that simple. I try to look at it at science fiction in its broadest sense. So if it's happening, it could be tomorrow. That's the future. It could be a thousand years from now. But as long as the rules of the story have underpinned with science and possible technologies, you've got science fiction. What do you think that science fiction does that other forms of futurology, forecasting, predictions, essay, philosophy can't? You you talked a little bit about how you're not going to use statistics, how you want to open up kind of multidimensionality of possible futures in which, you know, one avenue goes to a thousand more avenues that each of which branch out into a thousand more avenues. A lot of that could be dealt with conceivably through something like statistical forecasting. But what does science fiction get at for you or allow us to see or know? or understand that these other forms, forecasting prediction, essays, philosophy, etc., cannot? Well, there are a few answers to this question. For me personally, I find that my intuitions about where things are going are often stronger than the statistical analysis of people who do that for a living reflect. I get to really work with human nature. I get to look at human psychology, groups of humans together, how we behave as a species. And I like to tell stories about people. One of the reasons I write science fiction is that in science fiction, I can ground my story in character. People take information in a much clearer manner through character because they can relate through empathy, which I'm assuming we'll get to in this conversation. (laughs) By having empathy for those characters, they can understand more clearly the issues, dilemmas, world that they're inhabiting. I want to talk a little bit more about this idea of of character. One of the things I've heard you say is you want to bring the ideas of philosophy wrapped in the shell of characters. I'm really interested in this idea of story and character and what story and what characters do to ideas. I mean, I can't conceivably see a form of science fiction, or I suppose I can, but I wouldn't like it very much. That is just an idea played out through characters and through plot and through you know imagery, etc. Are characters 
characters and stories just vehicles to advance these ideas? Or are the ideas and stories or the ideas that come out of stories the byproduct and sense of dramatizing human lives? Is it that the ideas come first and you, you find a character to wrap it in? Or do the natural outcomes of people living out in certain imagined conditions result in themes and ideas. And it actually, you know, just to give a little paragraph of thought here, reminds me of a larger problem that I'm seeing in fiction generally. I think that this is beyond science fiction in the cultural milieu right now of writing, where political or ideological stakes of art are so prioritized, the moral or ideological or political intentions of art so much in the foreground, and the messiness of human character so touchy for people, that the thing that makes something art, complexity, contradiction, actually ends up disappointingly, at least for me, receding to the background or just has no place in the art since characters, if they are really to be like people, are messery or contradictory, what we might call human. What in your view do characters do to the ideas? What's the relationship between a piece of science fiction and the philosophies that some people talk about, the themes or the ideas that emerge from them? How does character transform or alter an idea for an audience? Okay, those are like 18 questions. So let's start here. <laughs> Start at the beginning, don't stop till you get to the end. First, from a process standpoint, I'll answer the process question first. I work in both directions. There are times where I see a technology like brain-computer interfaces and think, how do I want to tell the story of where that could, where these things could go? What are the problems? What are solutions? What are the complications? Where is the complexity? Like I'm all about the complexity. <laughs> and other times I'll just have a really strong character in my head. And I'm writing a short story right now where, where even though I knew the arena of what I wanted them to be doing, really the character came first because I thought that's just such a great character. And I wanted to explore who, who that guy would be. And when it comes to character versus ideas, I think one of the great things is, number one, I love flawed protagonists. Love them, love them, love them. I love villains who make a whole hell of a lot of sense. My favorite way of telling a story is that, to quote Jean Renoir, the tragedy is everyone has their reasons. And that's always been a guiding light for me in almost any form of, of storytelling I've ever worked in. I want to see people as human and what their drives and desires are as they they were trying to do the right thing. You might not agree, but they certainly did. So given that as sort of my personal writing character philosophy, the relationship between characters and ideas it can be quite messy where you can have two characters, a protagonist and a villain going after the same idea, but having the opposite ethics about how to get there. In fact, my entire series of novels is about this, is people working together to achieve a goal, but their ethical aims both for the technology and for the what might it might be used off label, shall we say, um, are vastly different. And what they're willing to do to accomplish their goals is incredibly different. So to me, right there, you've got messy, complex storytelling because it's not clean. They don't exist on opposite ends in all of their choices. They they exist together side by side and the differences are actually quite slim, but they make all the difference in the world. So I'm looking at ideas that I think are where we're actually going. So again, from this is all per perfectly personal and not a meta 
theory. For me, I want people to know where we're going. I think where we are right now is in future shock. And future shock occurs, this is the Toffler's idea, societal disruptions that happen when future comes to society too fast. I think we're in it right now, every single period in history where we've made huge, transformative, technological paradigm shifts, accompanies future shock. With future shock comes the polarity of worldview and politics comes us versus them and othering even more so than humans normally do. <laughs> um, and we live through these periods in intense strife and anxiety. And I feel like in science fiction, we can warn people about what's coming. And even if they have a little bit of a sense, it's not a complete profound shock for them that this thing exists. And now they have to start making their own ethical decisions about why what we do when when confronted with this thing. You know, as you were talking, what came to mind for me is the moment that we're in right now in the context of a global pandemic. And at the beginning of the pandemic, I had so many people, you know, say to me, it's just like the movie Contagion. In that sense, the movie Contagion had provided what what we might call in literary studies a trope or a familiar refrain so that people could recognize the music that we were in, so to speak. And it actually preempted and gave people a template about not just what was going on so that they could metabolize the environment around them, but also prompted them to respond in certain ways forecasted by the piece of science fiction that they had familiarized themselves with. And I think what you're getting at is the idea, or you're advancing the argument that it at the moment we're in right now with this very quick technological advance, we're in a narrative crisis. We don't have the narratives to accommodate this particular moment. We don't have a trope. And so we're lost in the melodies. What we do is we fall back on the simplest and probably the least morally humble forms of storytelling, the least complex forms of storytelling. Usually those are stories of us versus them, et cetera. And so in falling back on those stories, we actually end up making things worse for ourselves because we lose the complexity of the moment that we're in. We lose the opportunity to make new stories. And in addition to that, we put ourselves into a story that ends up probably causing the most amount of harm possible in that particular moment. How do you think about that? Is this just a need for new, better stories, more complexity? What do you think? So this is both a narrative and an ethical answer. Uh, to me, context is everything. And context is dependent on where the frame around the things you are considering begins and ends. So I use, when I talk about this kind of subject, a film, a short film, by Ray and Charles Eames called The Powers of Ten. Now, the film was designed to explain exponential change and how quickly your context changes every time you either increase or decrease by power of 10 where you are. And the where you are is two couples on a picnic blanket uh, on Lake Michigan in Chicago. And very quickly by powers of 10, you know, you're in Chicago, you're in the United States, you're in the globe, you're in the solar system. I mean, you're, you're constantly getting a huge shift in perspective. And likewise, when you go in, you zoom in, you've got the couple, but then you're on her hand and then you're inside the cell of her skin. And you know, it gets all the way down to the subatomic level by power of 10. Why I use this is both in narratives and in ethics is that our problem is the frame around which we create our context because people naturally, based on a combination of internal wiring and societal teaching, are taught or simply think in terms of specific frameworks, the individual, the family, 
the religion, the state, the nation, whatever it is, we think of, well, what's the answer to this problem through this frame, how big or small that frame is? And I think it's not a crisis of narrative tropes as much as it is a crisis of context. This goes back to your idea of, of, let me digress for a second, of ideas versus character. Idea is a huge context. You know, we're looking at in the in the realm of ideas, a brain computer interface. Let's just do something easy. A robot, like all the robots, right? That's a lot to handle mentally, every kind of robot that exists. But if I want to tell a story of a single robot and is it anthropomorphic? Is does it think like a human? Does it react with humans? Suddenly that context becomes well defined. But the questions and answers I'd ask about the robot in that context would be different than if I was doing a story about 15 different kinds of robots within an environment. So taking it back to what you asked, I think that defining the context of each of these ideas, it's like we have to tell, keep on telling the same stories or the same tropes, but from different perspectives. And is it, you know, the child and the robot and the robots raising the child? Is it uh, a nursing home filled with robots who take care of the elderly? Is it a bunch of robots existing in the landscape and the people are gone? You know, this is Wally. And what happens when the people discover them again? There are so many ways to approach the interaction between the character and the idea, the context. That's certainly one of the big considerations I have is, is where is this going to fit in? And also, how many ways can I make the right answer, if you will, the ethical answer, if I'm looking for that in a story, ultimately? How many of those contexts can I satisfy at the same time? Can I satisfy the individual? Can I satisfy the family, the community? I mean, how many ways can I make that work? I mean, you have a tough job if you're trying to do it ethically, because one dimension of ethics, I think, that I hear coming over and over and over again, not from the science fiction writers, but primarily from the, the builders of what I call ethical technology, technologies that are trying to do better things in the world, is that you really have to have hope. That hope is an ethic and that optimism is an ethic. And I look at a lot of the science fiction that I read and it is so darn unhopeful. And, you know, this is something that I really grapple with. On the one hand, I, I have to hold two things in my mind, which is that hope is an ethic on the one hand. And on the other hand, if we're forecasting, honestly, there are a lot of things to be pretty pessimistic about. You know, Kim Stanley Robinson points us toward the uh, environment, as does Gibson and so many other people as things that are inevitably heading in a pretty alarming direction. This is something that I talk about with my students fairly frequently. They take my science fiction course and they complain that all of the science fiction in the class that I'm asking them to read are dystopias. They want both sides of the story, right? The, every, every story they think has two sides. That's not something that I'm particularly committed to, but they want the other side of the story in this case. They want the optimism. And what I see is that most science fiction is essentially tragic. It has a tragic view of historical progress. It is generally pessimistic about technological innovations and where they ultimately take us, where we ultimately end up with them. And 
And that those who imagine the future through science fiction seem to distinctively imagine the future as deeply not ending up well. And so I say to my students that simply I would include more optimistic science fiction if there were more of that variety of science fiction. I point them to Icarus, uh, one of, I think, our first science fiction characters um, who builds wax uh, wings to go fly to the sun and inevitably uh, crashes and burns to Frankenstein's monster to the kind of you know reality Facebook or Google monster in Dave Eggers' The Circle. And, and I point out that most fine science fiction just doesn't end too well. Um, I think in my class, we get you know two pieces of optimistic science fiction, Star Trek, and, and as you mentioned, uh, WALL-E. And even then, there are narratives about um, humanity narrowly escaping tragedy. Am I on to something thinking that science fiction tends to share this kind of more pessimistic point of view that the future is sort of grim? If there is an ethical possibility of imagining otherwise, how do we realistically imagine otherwise when the future is seemingly inevitably tragic looking on so many different levels? Well, you came to the right place because I have a lot to say on this. <laughs> so let me first address the, why so many dystopias, and then we'll talk about the not dystopias. We have a lot of dystopias for two reasons. One, the cautionary tale is a lot easier to tell because we can look at something and come up with the, wow, oof, this is going to be difficult down the line. Please let's not go down this scenario. <laughs> and have it turn into an utter disaster. That's actually really, from a writer's standpoint, that's the easiest story to tell when you're talking about what's coming in the future. By the same token, in positive periods of time, we're able to take in dystopias. So when we think we're in a building period or, a, you know, we're not economically crashed, politically crashed, we're not at war, etc. we can handle dystopic, dystopic stories really well. They're incredibly popular during positive periods in history. When we're in negative periods of history, any story, this is not just science fiction, you know, the most popular forms of filmed entertainment during the Great Depression were movie musicals and screwball comedies. And granted, we had gangster films. We had, you know, the woman's film, which always usually ended up badly. We had a whole bunch of, of genres during the Depression that not, weren't necessarily positive, but the most successful were the comedies and the musicals or romantic dramas. They could be dramas, but, but there had to be romance at the heart of them. So we're in a period of time right now where your students are right in the zeitgeist. They're not happy reading all these dystopias because they look around them and go, I'm living it. Uh, you know, I'm not seeing the positive trends in the world for me to be able to comfortably take this in. There's another issue at hand. And this is what I refer to in, I've written some articles on it. I'm writing a book on it. I have a Facebook group of authors and academics who participate in it. It's called The New Mythos. So I've been looking at the why of the exact same question. Um, why so many dystopias, you know, beyond the fact that the mother of all the stories I tell is still Frankenstein and Mary Shelley. And one of the issues we have is we're looking at stories through the lens of mythos created thousands of years ago, and in some cases, hundreds of years ago, but they're still not addressing a lot of the modern issues we have. So we're so trained in story. We're so, so swimming in it 
that we unconsciously tell biblical stories, ancient Greek stories, Chinese stories, you know, Persian stories, African stories that refer back to much older tales. And these tales don't tell us how to function well in a technologically advanced future. So I had this kind of literal epiphany. I was at a convention called NorwestCon in 2018, and I was sitting on a panel called Science Fiction in the Age of President Trump. And we were really trying to grapple with why the dystopic stories, how could we tell science fiction in a, in a way that would help us through this period? And I had one of those moments where, you know, you, disem- you sort of like disembody and you start know, to start channeling stuff through your mouth because it just starts coming. And, and it was really clear to me, and this is, by the way, wasn't new. I, I think I was just plugging into a whole bunch of stuff that had pinged me. Uh, Arizona State University Center for Science and Imagination has been dealing with these issues. But hope punk, climate punk, solar punk, you know, there are a whole bunch of subgenres we'll get to in a minute. But as a larger topic, we've been teaching kids through our dystopias to fight, but they never know what to do after the fight is over. Literally, in a story structure, we tell a rising action that climaxes at ending the big bad and the denouement is, and they hug. Then what? What what are people supposed to do after, what happened to Hogwarts after Voldemort died? You know, what happens after after all of these things happen? And the irony is that it's only people like Kim Stanley Robinson and some of the fantasy writers that I know, like Missy Shaw, who are thinking in terms of the building of community and looking instead of at the savior or the chosen one stories, what if there are a bunch of people working together? That's a lot more of a reality, right? What if instead of there being a status quo we had to revert to, so superhero stories are unbelievably guilty of this, right? You know, like the community has a cataclysmic event, the superhero goes out, fixes it, and then the community is back to the status quo. That's not how reality works. It's not how history works, not how anything works. And what if we started telling stories that accepted that we're actually aware enough as human beings to start seeing the gears in the machine of time and history and complexity. Like that's really where our future shock is coming from. We're actually seeing the complexity and it's freaking us out. So what if our stories didn't have a tiny denouement at the end? What if they actually included world building? What if the whole story was world building that's solving a problem? I'm asking science fiction and fantasy writers to start looking at new ways to tell stories. Because also the stories we tell that in terms of 3X structure, rising action, short denouement, that's so Western. Most of the world doesn't tell stories like that. We have through cultural imperialism spread those stories because they're extremely successful and, and satisfying emotionally on a certain level. But I think we're better than that. And so a bunch of writers are all getting together, whether it's through the new mythos or whether it's through programs like at ASU. I'm trying to figure this out. I mean, this is so fascinating to me and I have so many different thoughts, but but the first thought is to say that I think that that 
the novel is really where this has to happen in a sense, because I try and think, you know, I've worked in television in Los Angeles, and I try to think about what it would be like to try and sell a story that then has to go through, you know, 2000 different studio heads, and then has to get funded and then has to get actors signed on to it to try and tell a fundamentally different story. Now, it happens every once in a while, especially if you have a big star attached to it, if it's an art film, but so many of these stories have to be pitched as it's like, it's like friends, but this, or it's like Black Mirror, but that. And in that sense, I think that, you know, that these things have to happen on the level of the novel, especially right now with material changes to how people go about publishing novels, such as self-publishing. It allows people, I think, to start creating and producing and distributing different kinds of stories without the kind of strictures or structures that happen in these other forms. Do you think that these new stories rest in the form of the novel? Do you think that the novel here is our future if we want to cultivate and tell these stories? Or are there other forms that you think are amenable to or will be successful in doing this kind of work? The novel is has always led the way in terms of structure and experimentation to their audience, but, and you can do this in the short story as well, ironically, but I come from Hollywood, like my entire background is Hollywood, so I totally understand where you're coming from. We have to remember that if a great novel comes out, Hollywood will be much more interested in telling that story, you know, very popular novel. Right. Also, we have people making projects that aren't within the studio systems uh, or streaming or specific specifically studio-run streaming systems. There are plenty of streaming systems that are not studio-run. And I would love to see people experimenting with the form that we're talking about. In fact, I have, interestingly, I have fine artists and I have filmmakers in this group as well, in the New Mythos. And we are seeing where does this go beyond just what we think of as traditional novel form. I think the more of these stories that we tell, the more of these stories will get told. It's it's kind of as simple as that. When uh, Aristotle was writing down the rules, he had already seen a whole bunch of plays that had applied these rules. And he went, wow, they're rules. <laughs> I see the rules. <laughs> And I think that's where we're kind of at right now before Aristotle. We're, we're trying to figure out what stories can be told, what those stories look like. Do people like these stories? You know, in my own work, I was pegged as dystopic in my first novel and which I, I, you know, I kind of fought back on. I was like, it's not really a dystopia. I leaned into the dystopia in my second novel and then went, no, well, I even I can't go there. <laughs> it's too dark. And then in the third novel in the series, I had I basically had my epiphany after the second novel and had to start rewriting the third novel. I was in the midst of writing the third novel when I had the, the ah, you know, in the middle of the, uh, the, the panel. And I went, OK, I, you know, I'm going to have to walk my walk. You know, I used to make fun of the, the Tolkien ending, which is nine endings, one right after another. But there's something to it because he had a lot of stories to wrap up and he had a lot of threads to gather so that everybody had their moment. And I had to work with my editor carefully to not overdo that, but also not underdo it and not achieve what I had set out to do. And, and apparently people believe I have succeeded. So hooray me. But it's a real mind bender in learning how to break the rules that you've been raised in your entire life and that the culture has been raised in for centuries or millennia. And we have to start somewhere. And that's where the hope comes in. Hope comes in in telling stories about hope. And that's where the new mythos comes in. And that does encompass a lot of the new mythos is about hope punk, solar punk, all the positive punks. 
And we want to tell more of these stories. So when I talk about the new mythos, I'm also talking about tropes that are about how you tell the positive story, how you tell the hopeful story. That's what it's all about. I want to pull a thread out here because I think you're talking about something very resonant to me on two different registers, one that's much more familiar to me and the other, I think you're you're pointing me to see something that I hadn't otherwise seen before. You know, sometimes when I talk to my students, I say that before we can create anything, we first have to imagine it. Before we can build it, we first have to imagine it in our minds. Science fiction does that imaginative work. It prepares us for real technologies when they arrive, it creates imaginary landscapes that then people can build on. I talk to my students sometimes about how before we could have a moon landing, we had science fiction writers imagining the possibility of human beings going to the moon. And that prompted people to build the technologies that enabled uh, us to do that. And when people saw the moon landing for the first time on their televisions, they already had in their mind a kind of background formed by science fiction. And so in the one sense, these imaginative works help us to build something. They prompt us about how to build something. But what you're saying here, I think, is that the kinds of stories that we know are also the stories that are possible for us to live. And so before we can live in a certain way, we first have to have stories and templates that allow us to build the imaginary landscape of what is possible for us in terms of not only experiencing something, but organizing that experience into a causal narrative in our minds. And so those stories and building new stories prompt us to have new ways of synthesizing, putting together, understanding our experience as well. And so science fiction seems to me like a bridge that connects those two touchstones. On the one hand, it has the opportunity to provide us new frameworks for thinking about how to organize our experiences or our lives. It builds new landscapes for us in that register. And in the other register, it actually envisions new technologies themselves or new possibilities for technological advancement. Am I making sense with this kind of like bridge I'm building? about how science fiction registers on both of these levels. Does that make sense uh, in, in any way? Absolutely. It absolutely makes sense. I totally, I'm, I'm totally writing it. So, so then how do you think about the relationship between the imaginative work of science fiction in both of these registers and its work in creating or helping us build in the real world? I always go back to Ursula Le Guin's quote, and I'm paraphrasing it badly, but basically, you know, there was a point at which we couldn't imagine any other way but the divine right of kings. And that it was stories, especially during the Enlightenment, that allowed people to inhabit new ideas of how to live. And some of it was through satire, you know, Voltaire, and everybody was, was, was attacking the new ways of thinking about how we live in every genre, in every form of communication. And that eventually eroded the divine right of kings. <laughs> I look at this period of time in the same way. I think we are at a huge transition period in how humans relate to our, about how we think about ourselves, how we think about our communities and how we think about ourselves in relationship to a, even a cosmos. So we have to start telling those stories for people to imagine we could live in them. The second part of your question is more specific about the influence of these stories on the feedback loop of technology and storytelling. And that's what it is. It's a feedback loop. We have always had stories that have inspired people to try. Well, actually, it goes both ways. So Mary Shelley read about the galvanistic experiments with electricity and frogs and how they, these frogs appeared to live again. And that freaked her out. And she thought it was cool and icky at the same time. And <laughs> 
she decided she and she had apparently a nightmare about it. And that was a great influence for her to write Frankenstein, which in turn got people thinking about, well, hold on a second. What is the electrical relationship to life? And we now have an entire parts of medicine that are devoted to this relationship between the electrochemical and, you know, and, and life and how we can heal people with it. And, you know, all the countless Star Trek, you know, tricorders and flip phones and, you know, <laughs> all the stuff that, that we make fun of, but are, is completely real. You know, that, that these are, I love looking back at, at, you know, like Next Generation and there's Picard using a tablet. Ooh, tablet, you know, <laughs> but somebody went, hey, we could do that. That's not so hard. So, so these are, this is a, an, an absolutely well-established, well-worn pathway between storytelling and technology. And sometimes when we tell those dystopic stories or the cautionary tale stories, I would like, again, I would say my stories are much more cautionary tale, not necessarily dystopic, but the cautionary tale stories are very much about, hey, we're going to have this technology or we could have this technology and then, you know, don't go that way, go this way. You know, it's, it's the, it's the warning of if we develop this and look, we're probably going to develop this, let's do it right. So let me give an example. My, I sadly quite personal example. My first book came out in 2015 and in 2016, he started thinking about it in 2017, Elon Musk gave one of his early PR talks about Neuralink and that's when he announced it in 2017. And I was listening to the talk because, wow, brain computer interfaces, you know, I want to hear what people are doing. And like some of the wording was really familiar. And I was like, oh shit, this is out of my protagonist's speech to the people who are his investors. Whoa. And then he announced what he said that Neuralink was going to be. It was going to be a neural mesh. And I thought, well, that's really ambitious because I have done a huge amount of study. In fact, much of the same study Elon did because all of this information was available at the same time. So we were, you know, we were all reading the same research and, and data at the same time. But he had it all kind of in a download. I had been doing it for years before my book actually came out. And his neuroscientists realized that it would be far too difficult to do what he wanted to do. So he comes out and says, I've got a first stage, it's in pigs, here it is. And it's a direct copy of what I wrote in my book, like direct, like even, even how he visually and where. And then the problem becomes as an author, holy crap, he's doing things that I don't think are necessarily ethical in his plans. So it's not just about the feedback loop. It's about that sense of responsibility. How are we presenting this stuff? And who's going to pick up on it and run with it? And now he's like, you know, a year later, like I'm putting it in humans. And everybody in the neuroscience community is going, help, help, uh, because it's really early. Like he's not showing his results on, before he's doing this. And this is biotechnology. This, you know, this isn't a car. Cars have huge ethical issues, but this is putting something inside of a skull. And so that feedback loop of we come up with an idea as a what if and we pose a cautionary tale can be really dangerous. It's like all the Wall Street bros watching Gordon Gecko give greed is good, the greed is good speech and going, that's my man. I even, they even make fun of it in the movie Boiler Room, which is fantastic. This is the dilemma we have as, as writers with this issue. I want to talk a little bit about the concept of empathy, which is something that your fiction is consistently interested in and that you've also written about very overtly in your nonfiction as well. You have a piece titled 
is technology destroying empathy? Where you write that, and I'm going to just directly quote you here. Empathy, the ability to share someone else's feelings, is perhaps one of the most important traits humans demonstrate. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship that you see between storytelling and empathy? I think we've danced around this a little bit, but I, I wanted to ask you to directly talk about that. Storytelling doesn't have to be about people. We know this. You can tell a science story that has no people in it whatsoever. But for general audiences to really care, the easiest way to reach them is by using neural pathways that we have well established. So in our brains, we create empathy on the same neural pathways that we have emulation. So in the same way that a child learns how to do a motor skill for the first time as a toddler, whenever, whatever, we use those same neural pathways to imagine ourselves as that toddler is imagining themselves emulating their parent or their friend. We still use those neural pathways to both emulate what's real and what's not real. So in storytelling, if I use a character, that character can be as wildly different from me as possible. But if I establish the character well, if I make them a complete character, if I make them interesting, if I, put, I if they have issues or dilemmas, if they have things that I can relate to, wherever those little hooks are, I will reside in their shoes. I mean, empathy is the feeling of being in the shoes of another. And I will have a greater ability to understand the story that they are traversing through and feel like I'm experiencing that myself. There's a lot of excitement about certain technologies expanding our are catalyzing our ability to empathize. Virtual reality, for example, I hear talked about a lot as a promising technology in the views of many that will allow us to experience somebody else's reality in virtual settings. I remember reading about a museum that uses virtual reality to enable visitors to inhabit a refugee experience or an initiative that allows military veterans to work through PTSD by way of an experimental treatment called Virtual Iraq, in which patients who experience combat trauma can work through that trauma in computers. Uh, simulated environments. I think you cite uh, similar studies in a piece that you have on empathy as well. There's a tremendous excitement about the ability to create opportunities technologically for empathy using these forms of scientific tech. And I guess, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical about this. There's a short story that I teach about virtual reality in my class called Welcome to Your Authentic American Indian Experience TM, in which a virtual reality simulation allows folks to inhabit the experience of indigenous Americans. And what starts off is a story that could conceivably uh, allow cross-cultural connections turns into appropriation. Are you optimistic about these new technologies enabling empathy? Are these technologies that allow us to literally step in somebody else's shoes, doing the work of fiction that allows us to do that through literary technologies? Are they something different? Are you optimistic about them? First, one of the things that we've seen repeatedly in uh, research over the last 15 years is that literary empathy functions differently than visual empathy. And I would that VR, movies, and television. Literary empathy forces you to create an imaginative experience. We use what we know already. So in essence, we have neural pathways developed. The example I usually give is a castle. In a novel, we're reading about the castle, and we've constructed a castle in our minds from the pieces we already have that exist of the castle. 
And that sticks more than the visualization of seeing someone else's imagination of a castle. This also applies to character. And we tend to have a slightly different flavor of empathetic reaction in literary form than we do in a visual form. Not that we're not empathizing in the emulation style in visual, because we clearly are. But somehow re-walking the well-trodden neural pathways in our brain that already existed from our imaginations somehow is a, is a, a stickier experience, is the best way I can explain it. That's number one. Number two, virtual reality, well, actually every single form of storytelling, this, is, this goes for absolutely all of them, is both an empathy or can be an anti-empathy experience. And this is something that has come up in the research since I wrote the original journal articles, because people were so excited by seeing empathy and actual action that they didn't really think about the role of anti-empathy. So stories do both. Anti-empathy is when you want to create a smaller in-group. And again, we go back to those big frames of context. How many people are we including in our frame in the story we're telling? What we've discovered about empathy in general is that if you have a very open, wide context for empathy, an expansive view of who falls within your frame of concern, you have a lot of empathy for a lot of people, but it's dispersed. It's not that we are necessarily that finite a resource, but it's more dispersed. If you have a much smaller group of people you empathize with, you really empathize with that tight in group. And that's a method that is used to create armies and, and police forces and a whole host of extremely tight in-groups that by definition have to utilize us versus them psychologies to create the ultimate tight human group. We also see this in religion. We see this in a, in a whole variety of, of human groups. And storytelling can tell a great anti-empathy story and is used in propaganda all the time. It's used in recruitment. There's the famous video game, I don't believe it exists anymore, called America's Army, which the U.S. military was using as a recruitment tool. They'd watch your scores and say, hey, have you ever thought about being a medic? Uh, or, hey, have you ever thought about being a sniper? You're really good at this. <laughs> and these were storytelling devices that were not designed to create empathy. They were designed to reduce empathy and create adhesion to an in-group. So storytelling does both. People like to say, are you te techno-pessimist or story-pessimist or techno-optimist or story-optimist? I'm a techno and story-realist. I, I really see the power of both sides. I would like to move the, that Overton window of thought and concern and context to the optimistic side. That's my job. <laughs> and I don't want to give anybody any rosy ideas. The, ir the irony is like, for instance, I know the guys who did everything you mentioned. Like Skip Rizzo's the guy with, with the PTSD Iraq. He's a friend. I know all, all of these things you've, you've, you've dealt with. And they're all pieces of a puzzle of a much larger complex story of empathy and storytelling. I really wanted to go back to something that you said earlier on in that response where you talked about how we imagine using literature. The example you gave of a castle is we pull fragments of castles that we've seen or things that we've imagined or things that other writers have induced us to imagine and we pull them into building the world that this author is getting us to build. And you know, I, I don't think that I'm saying anything particularly controversial here that you or others haven't already said when you say that reading words 
In other words, doing that imaginative work, which I actually think is much more laborious than just intaking something visually. We have to go scroll through things in, if we're reading in time. We have to deal with translating these scribbles on pages into visual cues in our mind. We actually have to build that imaginary world using the blueprint that the author has given us in our mind, pulling as we do from different imaginative experiences that we have already have. It's a really labor and focus intensive, and we're doing it, or at least we're trying to do it right now in a moment when our attention spans have been hijacked by other media forms that offer quicker rewards without the kind of labor or time investment. TV or film doesn't require that same kind of imaginative labor that books do. Virtual reality can bypass a lot of that labor as well. And I'm thinking about, you know, the moment that we're in right now in which our ability to imagine, I think is somewhat hobbled by the direct targets of our attention that come out of social media, that come out of our digital technologies that are constantly intruding into our ability to do what uh, Cal Newport has famously called deep work. How are you thinking about the future of literature in our age of digital technologies? How do our digital technologies interact with the kind of labor requirements that go into to imagining deeply in the way that I think literature asks us to do, and certainly science fiction asks us to do in creating worlds that really don't exist? It's funny. So I'm dyslexic, as well as dyscalculic and dysgraphic and all the disses. <laughs> and, and I have ADHD. So I'm the poster child of it's hard to sit down and read a novel. And I write them for a living. So <laughs> what I've recently discovered is how many people rely on audio books. And I think that's really telling in that sitting down and holding pages in your hand requires all of the focus you just described. And it doesn't allow you to multitask. Although Lord knows I tried as a child walking around with a book everywhere and bumping into walls. So <laughs> what I've been finding fascinating, even just in, in my own work alone, is how many audio downloads I've been getting. And in my own work as a researcher, how often I need audiobooks now to do the work I need to do because I myself have a lack of attention. And also because now my work is so screen oriented, I find it difficult to even imagine spending all day on a computer and then having to spend all you know night enjoying my Kindle. Like I, I find that hard personally. And, and it's not just because I'm dyslexic. So I think there's something to be said about the audio format as being really transformative. I'm seeing podcasts in the short fiction space, like Escape Pod, which is great. But there's a lot of short fiction podcasts now that are very successful for exactly this reason. You get the imaginative work, but you get to do it without using your eyes and while you could be doing something else. So, you know, taking a walk or exercising or what, cleaning the house, whatever it is, you're doing something that's, that's physical that doesn't take your focus from the imaginative act. Or it takes a little focus away from it, but not as much as, you know, you're not losing it completely. And I hold a lot of hope for the audio format because I think that there's a lot of good work that's being done there, even as original material. I think some podcasting in general, I mean, some of the great true crime and you know, whatever the, the areas where these are really flourishing, I think these are the new way of getting a high empathy participation. That's one part of the answer. The other part of the answer is I do worry about the instant gratification storytelling world. I'm, well, I'm actually working in it. I'm working with a nonprofit 
that does um, that's basically brought me in house as a futurist uh, to help them make. They've made short videos about history. Now they want to make them about the future, and you know, doing six minutes on very heady stuff using my TV background. It's been really interesting to watch that process develop. Like, how do we tell a story in a short period of time that gives everybody what they need? And then they can they can go away. And part of what I've been doing is bringing in more empathy hooks, more empathy work in the storytelling process of more people to empathize with or specific people to empathize with. We can really focus so that those lessons get taken in as opposed to a purely educational format. I think we have time for one last question. And I wanted to devote it to the question of the relationship between art and technology. Oftentimes, my students or the people I'm talking about uh, technology to come at it as oppositional. Technology is the most newfangled science-y thing that they can think about. And art is kind of this like pre <laughs> prehistoric element of all of the people you know who are doing things that are creative with their soft skills. And never the two should meet. Of course, they do in science fiction. But I like to trouble that. I like to go back to that root word technology technology and show them that the, the root word of technology is the Greek word techne, which means art or craft. It is you know, related to the word text, which means the, the woven thing, the art or the craft or textile, right? that thing that is put together, the threads of, of the craft, so to speak. And at the end of my class, I introduce, you know, I introduce them to the etymology at the beginning and at the end of the class, we get to Wally, which of course, as you were talking about, is a story about empathy, about love, about friendship, that has very little to do with human beings. The centers of love and emotion are the pieces of technology. Those are the ones who I think we identify with and feel empathy for, who demonstrate the capacities of love to the fullest degree. Love, this thing that we think of as a human emotion, actually here is the art. And then we talk about Wally for about an hour and a half. And as I close out the quarter, spoiler alert if you're taking my class, as I close out the quarter, I... I remind my students that this Pixar movie was largely put together by technologies, AI, that it was technology that is responsible for the creation of this piece of art. That tech created this thing that they found to be incredibly human and compassionate. And so I wanted to kind of ask you a question about the dimension of art, particularly in the context of literature. Of course, literature, the thing that many of my students think of as also orthogonal to technology, is constantly dependent on and changing through the technologies used to create it. The book as a form is reliant on the production of the printing press as a technology, paper, or more recently screens and information technologies. What we think of as literature or stories, I think we can also think of as a kind of technology. Can we think of art? Do you think of literature as technology? If so, how would you frame that kind of idea that literature, that art is tech? Technology is one way to describe a tool. And to me, all tools are technology. Hell, I like to joke, people ask me why I, I use Buddhism beyond the fact that I study it in my science fiction. And it's like, well, meditation and Buddhism is the first great brain technology. Somebody experimented for years, figured out a way to calm themselves, to direct their mind, to use their mind in the way they chose to see fit and were not driven by their emotions. That was the first great brain technology, you know, and to me, that's where the brain, brain computer interfaces just are a far down the road version from there. 
And in terms of storytelling, stories are a technology. We figured out a way to codify uh, how to best consume a story. And different cultures codified it in different ways. And this is the part that a lot of people don't think about, you know, again, act structures and, and the role of the character, even what an ending looks like. These are tools that we use to most easily transmit a story. And we use them really consciously. So, but you can say the same thing about every art form. Painting is reliant on technology and the change in what we used to paint from our fingers to sticks to brushes, from ochre to oil to ground up stone. They've added some oil to that. They created acrylics. And you, you know what I'm saying? Like there's there, every one of those changes is a technology. How we sculpt 3D sculpting, in turn, like, you know, CAD design and 3D printing is simply an evolution. All of this is about evolution. Everything we've talked about today, if, if, I, if I could use the one big word that ties it all together, it's evolution. Every single one of these is an evolved process where someone went, well, hold on a second. Maybe there's a better way to do that. Or maybe that solves, I've got a new way to solve a problem. You know, I can put paint on, on that wall, but it won't stick on this glass. How do I get it to stick? So we see an issue, we come up with a new tool to manifest the thing we wish to create. Technology are just tools. More importantly, the tools themselves are morally neutral and it's what we do with them in a value-laden and ethical context that determines their eventual use. Thank you so much, PJ. Thank you so much.